Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us. Great to be back to the routine, although yesterday was so much fun. And again, thank you to so many people who helped us raise all of that money for the CKNW Kids Fund. Always one of the best days of the year. Today, though, another busy show coming up on the program. We are going to get an update on the flooding. You've been hearing about that in the news. We'll find out exactly what is happening in Abbotsford and what the plans are to deal with any more potential flooding in that area. We're also going to check in with the MP for Mission Matsqui in the Fraser Canyon in the final hour of the program today to talk a bit more about that as parts of the province are bracing for another storm. Also coming up on the show today, Rick Mercer is joining us after the one o'clock news to talk about his new book. It's called Talking to Canadians. It is funny. It is poignant. It is a great read. And he's going to join us to talk about how that all came about. But first, we are talking about the increased activity at the Canada-U.S. border. Now that for short trips, 72 hours or less, Canadians no longer have to provide a negative PCR test to come back home. However, there is still some confusion. So I came down, I paid for my parcels. Uh, I never had a problem going across the American side. The guy couldn't be any nicer. I picked up the parcels. I was here less than maybe eight minutes. I went to uh, the grocery store, which is um, cross cutters across the street. I bought two gallons of milk and a block of cheese. I get back to the Canadian side of the border. I wait to go across, and he goes, um, "Have you filled out this form? You know, it's called uh, Arrive Can. Never heard of it. My wife just downloaded the vaccine passport this morning." And he turned me back and says, I'm not allowed to come back. He says, uh, either quarantine for 14 days or go back across the border and fill the paper in. No help whatsoever to tell me what to do or what to do or even fill the papers in. That was a gentleman by the name of Ken Johnson. He was stopped because he didn't have the Arrive Can app to get back into Canada. Just one of the situations where there has been a bit of confusion about that. We want to talk to Len Saunders, though, immigration lawyer with Blaine Immigration. And Len is on the line with us once again. Thanks so much for being here. No problem. How are you, Jill? Very well. How about you? Not too bad. Uh, We'll talk about some of the confusion coming up, but I first wanted to ask you, what are you seeing as far as increases in British Columbians coming across the border? What are things like in Blaine right now? It's finally getting back to normal after almost two years. So, you know, here's some great examples. I went and gassed up yesterday at one of our local gas stations. Normally, I'm the only one there. There was half a dozen Canadian cars with BC license plates. I drove by one of the mailbox facilities this morning. There was a line out the door of people waiting. I talked to the the post office yesterday. They said lots of Canadians were coming down to grab their mail, to renew their mailboxes. So there's definitely a lot more activity in this town. Even the border. I was at the Peace Arch Park earlier seeing a client. And they had about half the U.S. lines open, and the line was back up to the Peace Arch Monument. I haven't seen activity or at least, you know, Canadians coming down in these numbers for almost two years. It's nice to see. It's really encouraging. Well, and I would imagine the businesses, like you mentioned there, whether it's the parcel businesses and others that, that rely on Canadians, British Columbians, they must be happy too. Everyone's delighted. The gas station owners, the mailbox places, I know them all. And they all told me that their business has definitely picked up in the last two days. And I think you're going to see increasing as more Canadians hear that you can cross in and go back within 72 hours. 
And obviously, as your you know listeners said earlier, you know you have to do the the online the online app. That's a big issue here that most people don't know. So as long as they're prepared. There's no problems coming down for a short trip and then going back up to BC. Uh, yeah, and that was one person uh, that spoke with Global who was stuck there. My guess is there have been others because, like he said, it's no problem going into the States. It's pretty easy to do that. But Canadians still, even though the PCR test requirement was re- removed, they still do have to have the Arrive Can app on your phone and everything filled out. Oh, absolutely. So the rules are still there. You have to comply with that. Now, you know, not everyone has an iPhone or I guess an Android phone that can do it. So hopefully most people hear, you know, that there's still these restrictions and requirements in order to come down just for a quick day trip. But I think you're going to see less people having problems as the word gets out, you know, what the actual requirements are and to make sure that you have the app. So I'd be interested to, you know, speak to a couple of the CBSA officers on the Canadian side to see, you know, if it goes down uh, once more people, you know, hear these stories of the requirements. But I'm assuming, you know, most people are going to eventually go back and forth a few times and it'll go back to to normal uh, pretty soon. Do you think it'll have any impact? I know at this point it doesn't involve the United States, but with the new travel rules announced yesterday that everybody returning into Canada uh, will have to be tested at the airport, with the exception of the United States, do you think that might cool things in that I know people are concerned they may add the United States to that list, or might that mean people are still going to travel and stop in the United States to avoid having to do that? Well, obviously, if the U.S. is added to that list of flights, then I think you're going to see a lot of, you know, people not flying back and forth like they have been. Uh, I know lots of people who've booked holiday trips from Vancouver to the U.S. over Christmas. So, you know, I was pleasantly surprised when the Canadian government didn't add U.S. flights to those restrictions. But you know, going forward, who knows, right? I never thought that this border would be remain closed for almost two years. So, you know, it's almost like it's changing weekly or daily what the requirements are. But the nice thing is, you know, the King government has realized that there should be exemptions for flights from the U.S. and obviously Canadians taking quick trips to the U.S. So I think there has been a lot of common sense finally used by the Canadian government to try to reopen this land border. Uh, did you get a sense, or when you were at the border earlier today, and and thank you, you sent, I know you sent Ben, who produces this program, a picture of what was happening there. Did you get a sense as far as when you talk about things returning to normal? Does that mean nexus lanes are operating again, or should people prepare to be in longer lines? So there was actually a longer line through Nexus than the regular line. So obviously a lot of people are using Nexus. What's interesting, too, is they just... Uh, resumed the interviews uh, on uh, Monday, uh, two days ago, for Nexus. They, they had not done interviews for almost two years, so there's a massive backlog. So Nexus is open, more lanes are open at the border. It's definitely you know getting back to normal. And it was busy today. It's a Wednesday. So if it's busy on a Wednesday, I can only imagine on Friday and Saturday when more Canadians are off work, and are able to pop down to you know do grocery shopping or get gas or pick up their uh, their parcels that have been languishing here for months or you know almost two years. 
And well, that's what and that that clip that we ran off the top of Ken Johnson again, he got stopped because he didn't have the arrive can app. What I didn't play from there was he was he went down, like he said, he was only down there for about eight minutes. He picked up a parcel that was a T-shirt and a package of tea that has been sitting there for almost two years and said it wasn't even he spent much more (laughs) trying to just get the package than what was what the, the value of the contents was. Oh, absolutely. I would have been going crazy if I owned one of these mailbox places. A lot of them were opening up like secondary storage facilities that they were renting because they just, nobody was picking up these packages. Now with more people sending them, hopefully Canadians will be coming down to pick them up because I was told a few weeks ago when all of these restrictions, when, when they said they were going to lift on, uh, on the 30th yesterday, the mailbox owners were telling me that they saw a huge increase in the amount of packages not being picked up but that were being sent to them. So they were anticipating a lot of Canadians coming down in December to pick up packages, not only the old ones that have been sitting there for a long time, but obviously new ones. And Len, just one more question, because I know you mentioned this before in that the guard, the border guards allowing people into the United States had said earlier, they're not the COVID-19 passport or the, the vaccination police. Are you getting a sense, because people are to be vaccinated, are you getting a sense on what the questioning is or what, if anything, people are being asked to show at the border? The American restriction on showing proof of full vaccination started over three weeks ago. To this day, I've yet to have one client be asked for proof of vaccination coming south. Now, it's different going north. You have to show that going back into Canada through the ArriveCan app and all that. But the Americans aren't asking. They're not the vac- at least at the land borders, they're not. Um, I think they figure that they're not the vaccination police. So if people have been asked, I think that's the rarity because, you know, I have a lot of clients that drive back and forth, especially now with this limited reopening. And every time someone comes in my office, I say, did they ask you if you've been vaccinated? Nobody's been asked. It's, it's bizarre. Interesting. All right, Len, we'll leave it there. But thank you so much again for coming on the show. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Jill. Have a good day. Well, I am so excited that we are talking now with Rick Mercer and talking about, well, so many things. But specifically, Rick is here to talk about his new book, which is called Talking to Canadians. Rick Mercer is on the line with us. Thanks so much for being here. It's great to be here. Thank you. Well, thank you. Uh, Can we first, before we get into some of the great stories and how this all came about, can we talk about the cover? Oh, yes. (laughs) <laughs> well, the cover is a much younger me. It's probably, I'm, I guess I'm 19 years old, and it's the first photo I ever took for my first one-man show, and I needed to have a jacket, so I went off to the Salvation Army and picked up a smart blazer and uh, had the picture taken. And it was a very small one-man show. It was going to run for a week and a half in a small theater in Ottawa, and it ended up becoming a hit and touring the country, and I played Toronto first six, seven weeks. I played Vancouver for six or seven weeks. I played Ottawa. I toured Newfoundland. It, it brought me right across the country. So uh, lots of fond memories. And also because I'm, uh, it was either put the fat face gray hair guy on the cover <laughs> or the, or the blue steel 19 year old on the cover. <laughs> well, I love it. It's a great cover, but on it also though, you can't quite tell with the look on your face, what's going on. If you're about to go avenge someone's death or you've just <laughs> eaten something that you're kind of mad about. 
Well, I was an angry young man. <laughs> I'm not an angry middle-aged man, but I was an angry young man. That was that was my shtick, and it, and it was sincere. I did, I wasn't putting it on. Uh, but, you know, my first show was called subtitled Charles Lynch Must Die, because Charles <laughs> Charles Lynch wrote a column about Newfoundland that was not very nice, and uh, and of course the angry young man took took it and uh, ran with it. Love it. I love it. Uh, talk a bit about this. So I understand you wrote this. This isn't your first book by a long shot, but likely the first one you wrote perhaps during a pandemic. Oh, for sure. The first time I ever wrote anything about me, uh, everything I've done, uh, my entire career has all been about, always been about write it, make it shorter, make it shorter. When I would do the rants all the years on TV, anything above 90 sex- seconds was a personal admission of defeat on my part. So it was always about keeping it short. And of course, a memoir is long form. And I never ever wrote about myself. I never talked about myself on stage. I'm not one of the, that's not my act. So it was uh, a bit of an eye opener to start writing about my life. You talk about so many things and a lot about your childhood, about growing up, some very fond memories. One that, that sticks out from, from the book is when, uh, your, when your mom came home with another child, the 86-pound uh, the child who just kind of showed up in your house and then uh, stuck around. How, how much of that do you think really helped or, or, or was pivotal, I suppose, in, in you becoming a comedian, you becoming the person that you are? I don't know if it had an impact on me going into comedy, but it probably had an impact, although I rolled with it. Uh, I think they were all worried about uh, the impact it would have on me, I suppose, because I was the baby of the family. And when I was nine, yeah, we picked up a seven-year-old sister, and it just happened out of the blue. Um, but I was fine with it. I rolled with it. I think a lot of people were wondering, or in the family were wondering, oh, how's the baby going to, you know, now he's suddenly the middle child. But I was fine. It, it, it was okay. And, uh, and I'm glad it happened. And, uh, yeah, that was just one of those things. It's all very strange writing a memoir because I never was a reflective guy. And you look back at, uh, and you see all these things that happened in your life and people you met who had a positive impact in your life. And had you never met them, things might have gone a very different way. Uh, absolutely. They, they could have gone a, a whole different direction. Uh, there's also the passage about your older brother, as you said, you're the baby, uh, your older brother uh, doing the evil Knievel stunt and you were the sea of sharks. Yeah, we would, well, he would he would jump. He would we, we would build a ramp, you know, and he'd be jumping the bike, and we'd watch Evil Knievel all the time. And Evil Knievel had just jumped the 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 vat of sharks, and Evil, you know, he he crashed, and uh, oh, it was all very terrible. But uh, but of course, my brother was reenacting this, but he didn't have a vat of sharks, so he would I would lie on the pavement. And then he would clear me by a foot. He'd say, okay, move out another six inches. And I, I just kept moving out, moving out. And then it dawned on me, if Evil Knievel went into the vat of sharks, he would, he would get eaten by sharks. But if my brother crashed, he would land on me in a bike. He probably, I could lose a leg. But just luckily, at some point, a, a pickup truck drove along and some stranger got out and started yelling at us that we were going to kill me. And uh, then he stole our ramp. He just took the board and the bricks and threw it all in the back of his pickup and drove away, and we were off to another adventure. <laughs> when you talk about the fact that, that you're, you're stand-up, and anyone who has seen it would know that, that it's not about you and, you, and you don't talk a lot about your personal life. So how difficult was it to sit down or stand up and decide what parts of your personal life you were going to put in this book and share with everyone? 
Well, I wanted the book to be funny because I think that we are at a time now where people want funny and they want a bit of an escape. And uh, I do like reading memoirs. I like autobiography and I like them when they're sto- when they're funny. And so I drew a lot of on the moments that uh, uh, loan themselves to be funny stories. Uh, but then there was a lot of just exciting things that happened. I, you know, I write extensively about the, the creation of Talking to Americans, which was like a rocket. It was so much fun having that segment for a couple of years and, and Canadians responding to it so well. I, I write about high school, and it's not just about me. It's anyone who suffered through the Canada fitness test at school uh, will relate to a lot of the things that I write about, I think. Oh, you just you just conjured up some horrible, horrible memories for oh, me. Yeah, you would not believe how many people have contacted me over the stuff about the Canada Fitness Test <laughs> and the Flex Arm Hang, which I did a bit of research, and literally it was invented by the Marines, and it was used to break soldiers, hmm. literally, because they knew that certain soldiers, no matter how, how good a shape they're in, would completely fail, and this would break their spirit. And this, and the, the Canadian government somehow took this and, and made it mandatory for all children in Canada to do it. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong there? Oh, no, yeah. <laughs> um, chapter 13 is called Lucky. I'm guessing you did that on purpose. Uh, are you, do you consider yourself lucky in life oh in, in, in what's happened to you? Sure, I do. I, I never suggest anyone that they should go into show business. Well, I would never suggest it. But if people, if, if people want to study theater or go into music or do any of those things, I think that's great. Uh, I really do. And, but if you can do anything else, you should probably do something else and then play in a band on the weekends or get involved in community theater because it's a hurdle road and th- there's an adage, you, you can't make a living, but you can make a killing. But you need lucky breaks. There's no doubt about it. And you can't count on luck. There's, you know, if, you, if you go to teacher's college, you, you're not, you don't need to get lucky to get a job. If you have the degree and you're competent, you'll get a job eventually, whereas show business, is, it's not like that. You know, I lucked in so hard. I, I did my first one-man show, and it was a hit, but it was a hit in this dinky little theater in Ottawa. And at the same time I was doing my one-man show, which was a little hit, there was another show in Canada that was a, a one-person show, and it was being produced by the Vancouver East Cultural Centre and the Factory Theatre in Toronto and the uh, and Great Canadian Theatre Company in Ottawa. And it was, it was part of all of these major theatre companies' seasons. And the show was very technically complicated, and it closed after a week. It, was just, it, ju- it just didn't work. So suddenly, all these theatres in Canada had this big open hole in their season and they needed a one-person show and there i was getting these great reviews in ottawa so my partner gerald sold them all the show and for me i was 19 years old i did this show and it was a hit and then i went on a national tour i thought that's the way it worked no it takes two years to put a national national tour together it happened for me overnight and it changed everything and it was because of that tour that i was allowed to be in the room when 22 minutes was created so like that's a that's a lucky break that i wasn't even really aware of that had that not happened i don't i don't know what would have happened no imagine where you might be now or or how things might have been different for sure uh, talk a bit if you can also in the, in the book closer to the end of the book you write about christmas in kabul and going to kabul under uh, conditions that perhaps it wasn't advisable to travel at that time uh, but you went and and did that what was that like 
Well, it was something that I started doing a long, long time ago when this hour's 22 minutes was on the go. I went to Bosnia and did a piece at Christmas for uh, about the peacekeepers in Bosnia, and they were completely off the radar at the time. No one was paying attention to them, and they were in harm's way. They were the only people keeping two warring factions from killing each other. There was more landmines around than ever before, and I found, I made, I found the trip and uh, the experience incredibly personally rewarding. And I found it very strange that soldiers were always thanking us for being there when I felt like we should be thanking them. So it was a relationship that continued. And then uh, eventually we had this opportunity to go to Afghanistan and do a full Christmas variety show at Christmas. And it was it was much different than the Bosnia trip because, of course, we weren't peacekeepers. We were at war. And it was a very dangerous time. The Taliban was uh, uh, had just recently been defeated, and so they were lobbing bombs and missiles and everything else into the Canadian camps. And uh, But we went, and uh, I felt safe the entire time because I was being protected by the Canadian forces. And, uh, again, it was really personally rewarding, and I think everyone who went on that trip. Tom Cochran came on that trip with me. And you played life as a highway for these guys. It was very surreal, but it was like an old-fashioned Christmas concert, and uh, it was uh, it was great, great, great time. When you look back at your career and all of the things that you've done, which was more challenging: getting up in front of an audience the first time you did stand-up comedy, or writing this book? Uh, well, two completely different things, of course. I actually enjoyed writing this book, even though it was strange, and I enjoyed. Uh, you know, reaching out to old friends and colleagues and reconnecting and getting their version of events. And I think a lot of people did that during the pandemic, called old friends and stuff, especially in the early days when everyone was really, truly locked down. And it was a great time to do it because you get someone and they'd say, oh, yeah, hang on, I'll get a beer. I'll be right back. And then they'd stay on the phone for an hour and a half. Uh, people were eager to, to, you know, reconnect with people, I think. And uh, I enjoyed that very much. Uh, the the inside flap starts by saying that this kind of came about people asking what what were you going to do after retiring after 15 seasons of TV the answer was this book so what are you going to do now well I'm going to go on the road with Just for Laughs and it's a tour that's only been postponed five times <laughs> and uh, I didn't think I'd be able to write a book because I had this tour but uh, now uh, tickets are on sale at ha 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 dot com and uh, it's a national tour. We'll be in Vancouver May 21st at the Orpheum. And uh, I'm really dying to get back out there on the road with a great group of comics. All right. Well, I know a lot of people are waiting and um, very much looking forward to going to that as well. Uh, Rick Mercer, just before I let you go, I have to tell you as well. So Ben Dooley, who is the producer of this program, his mother uh, from Newfoundland, huge fan of yours. She just wanted me to pass along to you that if you were ever out this way and in need of food, she is inviting you over for, and uh, forgive me, I'm just the messenger here, Jig's dinner, but you have to bring the salted beef. Does that make sense? That makes all the sense in the world. <laughs> and salt beef travels well, so, uh, you know, it can live through a nuclear winter, so it'll, it'll uh, survive the Air Canada flight. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. The book is so fabulous. Talking to Canadians by Rick Mercer. Rick, thanks so much, and hopefully we'll see you in May.
Thank you. Well, yesterday it was revealed that BC has recorded its first case of the COVID-19 Omicron variant. Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry said it was somebody or is somebody in the Fraser Health region. The province is now doing full genome sequencing on all COVID-19 cases. But Dr. Henry did say yesterday that health officials are confident that they are not seeing widespread well, any widespread cases of the variant in BC at this point. We wanted to talk a bit more about this. So joining us now is Caroline Colane, Canada 150 Research Chair in Mathematics for Infection, Evolution and Public Health at SFU. Caroline, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Good afternoon. Hi. What are your thoughts, or when you heard about this variant and the fact that we have confirmed a case in BC, does that suggest that it's probably more widespread than we know at this point? I doubt it. I think it's probably, you know, as Dr. Henry said, not transmitting uh, in the community in BC right now. I think travel, the travel measures have probably bought some time, and hopefully, we'll have a little bit more time um, with testing of all international travelers coming in. So that's, I'm not worried that it's sort of already here among us and we haven't seen it yet. I think the sequencing all cases and, and if we can use PCR screens to detect them even faster, that will help us know right away if it does become established here. And is there any surprise that we're seeing this given the vaccination rates and given what viruses generally do, which is mutate? That is it, is it there any surprise factor that we are seeing another variant? Well, yeah, viruses do mutate and this virus will continue to evolve wherever there are lots of infections. And I think that speaks to the need to get vaccines out globally. This doesn't. And if there are countries with the the risks of large numbers of infections, that just gives the virus opportunities. So I don't think it's surprising that we see new variants coming along. This one is a cause for concern because of the particular mutations it has and how many it has. So it is something to really look out for in terms of, you know, may have, it certainly seems to have a growth advantage in South Africa. It seems to be able to um, to transmit or rise in frequency pretty rapidly. And, and obviously it's spreading around the world and being detected rapidly in lots of countries. So I think it is something we need to be a little bit concerned about um, for those reasons. And can we look at what's happening in other countries as far as the transmissibility of it or what we're seeing this virus or this mutation do, this variant do? Uh, can we learn from that and perhaps that would guide BC or guide Canada in, in Canada's response? So I think one of the challenges is, that, yes, we can do that and we, and we should and we will. Uh, but by the time we know some of the key things we don't know right now, it may be too late. And in a way, we have to act and make decisions right now even though we don't know so much there's some things we know we know the mutation profile looks worrying we know it's rising in south africa we know it can get into into vaccinated individuals because of course they're the the travelers that have where it's been detected have been vaccinated but we don't that doesn't mean our vaccines aren't effective we don't know that it's going to be more or less severe but the problem is by the time we know those things, in order to estimate those, you need thousands of cases. And so we don't want to say, well, let's wait until we have that knowledge for Canadian population. Um, so so I think it does put us in a, a bit of a tough position. Um, it's not certainly not something to panic over. And, and I don't think we have widespread transmission here. And one thing that's, that's reassuring to me is that, you know, the immune response is really broad and strong and has lots of different parts and so there, it isn't 
likely that, you know, this will break all the parts of the immune system and set us back to where we were. Uh, we will have some strong protection probably against severe disease. And we do have lots of tools at our, you know, in our toolkit. We have the masks, we have ventilation that we can, you know, we know now we need to use those. We have the uh, testing at the border is going to be really important. And of course we have vaccination. So we can vaccinate five to 11 year olds. That gives us a huge layer of protection around community transmission, probably for Omicron as well as the, the COVID that we already have. And when you talk about that, too, it's interesting, I guess it's almost I mean, it seems counterproductive. But if we did have widespread uh, transmission of this variant, it might actually show that that we are in good shape because, I mean, unless we suddenly saw hospitalizations spike or severe cases spike, then it would show that the vaccines are still working against this variant, wouldn't it? Or that it's not while a variant of concern not causing causing much more severe illness or death. Well, I mean, if we suddenly found out that all the COVID in BC was Omicron, it, yes. But of course, we, that's that's not possible because they've they've sequenced enough and and recently enough that we would know if that was the case. Um, hospitalizations are lagging, right? Most cases of COVID, and that'll be true for Omicron too, are are mild. And the problem is that that one or two percent or, or whatever it is, depending on age. That, that is severe is enough to burden the healthcare system if everybody, you know, if too many people get COVID at the same time, just because we can't, you know, we can't have all the, um, all the infections that would naturally happen, even if severe disease is relatively rare, like 1% or like 5% or like you know, one or 200. If many, many, many tens of thousands of people have that risk, that's still enough of a burden. Uh, you so I think that's the challenge. Most cases will be mild, but most isn't all. And do you think the travel ban, even though it was since that came in and, and they enacted it quite quickly along with some other countries, but if we're now seeing uh, Omicron is in even more countries, does a travel ban of specific countries make a difference? So it, we can't, I don't think the travel ban of specific countries is, is going to be very effective and it comes at a high cost. South African researchers can't get the key reagents they need to understand what this virus is doing. And they are the best place to do it because they have the, the public health surveillance and the labs who can work with the, the virus. It also comes at the cost of other countries maybe not telling us as soon if they do see something worrying. And that's a huge cost to the world. And as you noted, you know, this was already in Europe by the time we were enacting bans for seven countries in southern Africa. So it, it, the virus won't stay in one location. The measures that we have are porous with the testing, and, and really to tighten those would be dramatic. We'd need supervised quarantine. We'd need you know, all these things. And even then, it's porous. So I think you know, focusing on the best screening we can do for all travelers will be better than measures that target specific places. And and would it be better then as well, like you say, that kind of testing then and the rules then that they also brought in saying, although it exempts the United States, which I know a lot of people are questioning, but travelers coming back to Canada, it's no longer just random testing at the airport. It's testing for anybody coming in from another country. Yeah, and I think that helps. Um, it does leave a gaping hole. You know, we have today the news of Omicron in California. 
um, it won't stay out of the U.S. forever. So I think that's a, a matter of kind of expedience and it's convenient for us to have the U.S. border open and we need it open. That's convenience is maybe a minimizing way of saying it. Maybe it's essential. But the fact is that is a huge uh, potential route of entry. And the fact that Canadians can go in 72 hours and come back means that, you know, although that's, a, that's good, there's lots of good reasons, lots of good things about that. One of the costs is going to be that it allows whatever's in the U.S. to, in terms of COVID, to potentially also enter Canada relatively easily. And Caroline, you mentioned too, with the 5 to 11-year-olds now being vaccinated, uh, was as of yesterday, I believe, the numbers that were put out was where 84.8% of eligible people 5 and older in BC have now received their first dose and 81.7 have received their second dose. How much of a change do you think it will make given that that now includes the 5 to 11-year-olds? Yeah, I think it's it's huge. Kids who were not eligible were about half of the unvaccinated people in BC. So when we talk about a pandemic of the unvaccinated, half of those unvaccinated people, if we can vaccinate them and soon that will protect them directly against, you know, the COVID is usually mild in kids, but it's not always mild and that will protect them from the serious effects of COVID that they can have. And it will protect the adults and communities around kids, not not just the kids who are vaccinated, but, but other kids and, and their adults. So I think that's, that's huge, and it's probably one of the best things we can do right now in the face of a new variant is, is get those vaccinations out to 5 to 11. We don't know if this variant is worse or better in different age groups, so that means it could. There are reports of, of toddlers being ill in South Africa. We don't know, you know how that compares, how it would play out in Canada. But we have this tool of vaccinating our kids and we should use it. And, and I'm glad to see that we are using it. All right, Caroline Colain, we'll leave it there for today. But thanks again so much. Thank you. We've been talking about the flooding that is still very much top of mind for residents, even where we're seeing the waters recede in the Fraser Valley. We just heard from Henry Braun, who is the mayor of Abbotsford, still keeping a very close watch on those river levels. Well, joining us now is Brad Viz, the MP for Mission Matsqui Fraser Canyon. Thank you so much for making some time for us today. Happy to be on the show, Jill. Uh, your riding certainly uh, has seen everything from devastating fires to now flooding. What are you telling constituents as far as how they are going to be helped through this? Right. Well, still, as of today, uh, the situation is, hey, let's keep people safe and let's deal with the floodwaters. Um, but I've been in Ottawa the last two weeks and I'm working extremely hard with the Liberal government, um, pushing to get the necessary supports and long-term supports that our province is going to need in order to recover not only from the devastation my constituents faced in Lytton this summer with the devastating fires, but now the, the, the floods and washouts, which have literally impacted every corner of my riding. Uh, there was, uh, we know the Prime Minister was in the, the flood zone, came here. There was some criticism that he didn't spend a lot of time talking to farmers, talking to the people that were in those flooded out areas. But also the, the talk that at least he was there and saw for himself what was happening. Has there been any follow up on that or as far as getting that federal help? Um, the, we're asking about it every day in question period, and we're working behind the scenes with the Liberal ministers to make sure that the new joint committee formed between the government of British Columbia and the government of Canada 
addresses these real needs. Um, Mayor Braun mentioned to me, and as the Prime Minister knows as well, we had the reports knowing about the dangers we were facing. In fact, two weeks before the floods, I sat down with Mayor Braun along with two other members of Parliament, and we committed to advocating for the infrastructure money we needed um, as a province to, to fix our diking system. And then the disaster happened. And now, now the consequences are in the billions and billions of dollars. So the federal government has a very big role to play in helping our province to rebuild. And so far, I'm cautiously optimistic that the federal government recognizes those needs and is willing to work with our province and our, and our members of parliament to make sure that that funding's in place. But I will be pushing and I will be resolute in my efforts to make sure that in the next federal budget, that there are line items in there specifically for British Columbia's forest and flood recovery. And and which is, I know what constituents and what residents in that area are hoping for. But when we look at what happened, and again, this is so much has happened in your riding. When we look at Lytton and so many of the residents, they're still asking questions. And I know it's different levels of government, but still wondering why more hasn't been done to either rebuild that town or to figure out what the future is going to look like. If If the residents of Lytton are still waiting, it doesn't bode well for those who are looking at where their homes used to be and they've been washed away or or whose land is still underwater. Yeah, and I I think you're addressing one of my big concerns and probably my greatest fear and what keeps me up at night is that we'll be forgotten after the sensationalism of what's happening has passed. And that's where I come in to make sure that the federal government actually ponies up and provides the supports our province needs. The situation in Lytton, of course, hasn't been happening quickly enough, and I've been the first to say that even during town halls, um, that the province moved really slowly on some toxicology reports that the pre mentioned the other day, which really slowed up the, the process. So what people are looking for right now from all elected officials at every level of government is a level of transparency, that we're taking a Team Canada approach, and that we're putting the interests and, and of, of homeowners of, of, of everyone in every community, uh, first and foremost, in all of the work we're doing so people can rebuild and they can get their lives back to normal. There is so much work to be done, and the situation is so bad. Um, so that, that is why I'm going to be squarely focused on this, and I'm thankful the Prime Minister did come to my constituency. He came to Abbotsford to, to see the devastation. That was done in good faith, and I, and I honour the Prime Minister for that. But now we need to see the real federal commitments coming forward uh, to assist not only people in my riding, but we still Merritt's still evacuated. Merritt's not in a good position either, nor is Princeton. These small communities don't even have the, the money that's required to build back and pay the municipal contribution on many of the infrastructure projects that are be- going to be coming forward. And, and that's where all the MPs across party lines have to work together to get this done. And so far since the emergency debate where I asked the Prime Minister directly about funding for our province, um, as did other MPs as well, uh, so far the Prime Minister is signaling that that funding is going to be there. And it's just my job and my colleague's job to make sure that it gets done. And when you say, though, when I'm talking about rebuilding and getting things back to normal, I mean, is that even going to be possible in some areas where the roads have been washed away, where homes literally were swept away? The the, yeah. the foundation where that house was on isn't even there anymore because it's been <laughs> eroded. I mean, is that even possible? 
and, and those are answers engineers engineers need to answer and our experts need to answer. Um, but highway number eight, especially between Spence's Bridge and Merritt in my riding again, is devastating. And uh, um, Amanda Adams is a is a, a member of the Lytton First Nation and she lives out there. And um, those people are stranded. They're dependent upon at Shack and First Nation. They're dependent upon the government to give them supplies right now or private helicopters who've been doing great work to support uh, fellow British Columbians. Um, so there's a lot of things that do need to be discussed. And I think Parliament needs to spend a lot of attention addressing how uh, rural communities that are severely impacted by extreme weather and forest fires um, are going to live and thrive in, in moving forward. And the and, and we have we have a responsibility to get those those answers to people and to rebuild. Yeah. Uh, right. And, and just something else you said as well, because I think that is a real concern that once the water recedes, that, that the real hard work then is going to begin, but it's not yeah. going to be at the top of the newscast every day. So how do exactly. you keep the attention on it? Uh, th- that is <laughs> um, raising in Parliament, uh, working across party lines, preempting um, our, our federal leaders in, in the Liberal government to to, to, to make sure they make those commitments now and to hold them to account. I don't see any other way other than to keep the pressure on and to be resolute in our efforts to help build British Columbia back. But And, and the consequences are just so great, great if we don't. Um, the other day I was looking at some footage from Drive BC, as I know a lot of people in our province are right now, and the summit of Jackass, uh, the Jackass Summit in uh, the Fraser Canyon, excuse me, is completely washed out. Like, there's no roadway past Boston Bar. Um, and so these, these things just have to get done. And we, we just have to do it for our economy to function, for our supply chains to work, uh, for people to access the communities they were born and raised in, uh, not to mention the First Nations communities that have been there forever. All right, Brad Viz, we're out of time. We'll leave it there. But thanks so much. I know you're in Ottawa and there's a lot happening there today as well. So thanks so much for taking some time with us. It's my absolute pleasure. And thank you to all of the volunteers on the ground, um, to all of the service organizations doing so much to help my constituents. God bless you. Thank you so much.